In previous podcasts, we've described the social justice movement as both a Trojan horse and like an ogre, having many layers. Now, we continue with social justice as we take this time to stop and think about it. Hello? Hello, anybody home? I think, McFly, think. I'm thinking, I'm thinking. What were you thinking? I'm trying to think, but nothing happens. Don't say anything now. Just think about it. You're listening to Stop and Think About It, a podcast for the Christian thinker. In a day when sound biblical preaching has been replaced by man-centered entertainment and the church has become increasingly anti-intellectual, this podcast will encourage believers to think biblically and theologically. So please join me as we get ready to stop and think about it. Greetings, friends and foes, saints and sinners. Welcome to another episode of Stop and Think About It. Steve is on hiatus because he had uh, he's got a headache in his tooth and he had a little operation. And so uh, he should be back with us by the next podcast. Uh, absolutely. We also have the West Indian wordsmith, Glenroy, and our special guest apologist and professor, Tony Costa, a man with no intersectionality points. And I'm your host, Phil, the sensei. And today on Stop and Think About It, we will continue to address the history of the social justice movement. Where did this all stem from? Who are the key players? What was their ideology and their motives? And where do we see the effect in culture and in the church concerning social justice? So, Tony, uh, I don't know how many people on our podcast know about you, but uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you live, what you do. How did you come to know Christ? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I live in Toronto, right around uh, the Canada. corner. So, yeah, so I'm part of. Uh, I'm part of God's frozen chosen. <laughs> and and uh, my parents uh, migrated from Portugal in the '60s and uh, were married here in Canada. And uh, I'm uh, one of three brothers. Um, I am married. Uh, I have three children. I'm also a grandfather. And I came to know the Lord when I was 15 years old. Uh, I was raised in a Roman Catholic home, and two of my cousins came to know the Lord first, and they witnessed the gospel to me. And that led me to try to disprove them, because I was a very devout Roman Catholic. And um, I bought myself a Bible, uh, looked through it, read through it from Genesis to Revelation to try to refute them. And in reading God's Word, I was heavily convicted and came to know uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in, an early, in my early teens, I was challenged by a number of cults. I almost fell prey to one of them. And that propelled me into uh, the field of apologetics. And uh, I had a passion to reach not just the church, but to reach young people with the gospel and to give them uh, answers for, for faith and answering those big questions about life. So I went into higher education, post-secondary education. I I did my bachelor's degree and master's degree in biblical studies and philosophy at the University of Toronto. And then uh, I went uh, and did my PhD in Holland uh, in New Testament and theology. And uh, I uh, currently teach at the Toronto Baptist Seminary. I also teach uh, at another seminary called Heritage College and Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario, Canada. And I'm also an adjunct with the Providence Theological Institute in Franklin, Tennessee, in the United States. 
and I do some seasonal teaching with the University of Toronto. I'm also a, a pastor, so oh, I, um, I'm an ordained minister of the gospel. Um, my my colleague, my pastor, my senior pastor, and I both uh, we both pastor a Wesleyan church, but we're both reformed, and our people are 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 reforming. Uh, and so the way I put it is, we feel like uh, ducks sitting on chicken eggs. Um, <laughs> but but I've been involved in the field of apologetics now for about thirty years. And uh, a lot of my work involves not just teaching students and, and equipping them, but it also involves, I've debated a number of uh, Muslims, I've debated secular humanists, atheists. And so I, I have a passion in this area uh, to not just equip the church, uh, because social justice is a, a, it is a Trojan horse, uh, but it is an insidious, insidious uh, poison that is entering not just society, but also entering the church as well. So uh, the Lord's called me to this field. Um, I, I take 1 Peter 3.15 very seriously, set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer to those who ask of you about the hope that is within you. So that's my passion. And uh, I thank you for bringing me onto your pod- podcast. Amen. Well, we love having you. Dr. Tony, I, I just want to say I, I feel uh, wholly underqualified now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Steve always tells us he has a PhD too, right? A phenomenal hairdo. <laughs> so, Tony, what cult true. did you almost fall prey to? I almost fell prey to the Worldwide Church of God, uh, oh. which was led by Herbert W. Armstrong. Uh, and as you know, the World Worldwide Church of God has actually moved towards orthodoxy. They've abandoned Armstrongism and abandoned uh, his heretical teachings. However, after Herbert Armstrong's death, there uh, there was a, a, a splinter among the among the cult. There's a lot of uh, churches today, like the Philadelphia Church of God, the Global Church of God, and many others who maintain Herbert W. Armstrong's heretical teachings. Um, so, yeah, that was the cult that I almost fell prey to, and uh, uh, I specialize in the area of the cults as well. So, currently, I'm teaching a course in seminary on the cults as well. Is is that the one that also splintered off into the Mother God? And Jerusalem is your mother, and there's a Korean lady who's gone. No, no, that is a that is a South Korean cult, like the Unification Church, the Moonies, similar to that. Okay, and uh, yeah, so that that South Korean cult is 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 really growing in North America, in New Jersey and, especially. And yes, and it maintains that God is a woman, and 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 that's that's her. Uh, and so her her disciples are very very aggressive. And, and proselytizing. Yeah. But no, there's no connection. Yeah, I met I met with a number of uh, cult members, and this mother asked me to go p- rescue her daughter out of yes. uh, the cult. And I said, well, if God rescues her out, I'm not sending her to your church because your pastor is just as cultic because he's teaching on soul sleep and annihilationism. Uh, it's funny so. you say that. I just, <laughs> I just had a debate with Chris Date. Uh, from RethinkingHell.com. He's a conditional immortality advocate. I just debated to him this past Wednesday, Thursday, on the uh, Iron Sharpens Iron uh, radio. Yep. Amen. Now, Dr. Tony, what attracted you to it? I mean, I- I'm interested in things like that. Into, a, uh, into, a, into apologetics, you mean? No, into, into that cult in the first place. Oh, what yes. Was it that, that seemed to draw you to Yes, it? I was a young Christian. I was, I was probably 16, 17 I was a very young Christian, a baby in Christ, and and I, I found Herbert W. Armstrong's, uh, I found him very compelling, convincing. Uh, also, they offered free literature, so you could write in and you can get the Plain Truth magazine. You can get various books that he had written for free, and that really, 
that really uh, blew me away that you'd have a, a group like this offering their material for free. And so he was a very charismatic speaker. He se- sounded very convincing. Uh, he spoke a lot about the end times, the second coming of Christ. So it was a very apocalyptic cult. Um, and, and so that's what attracted me to them. Um, and the time I remember the time I realized they were a cult, I simply picked up a copy of Walter Martin's Kingdom of the Cults, which still remains the classic to this day. And lo and behold, the Worldwide Church of God was right in there. And I thought, what is this doing in here? And then I just realized if I could fall so easily to this cult, how many others are falling prey to, to Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and many other cults? And so I think the Lord really uh, basically knocked me over the head and, and said, you know, I want you, to, I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to protect them. I want you to, to, to build up my sheep and, and, and equip them. And so I've been doing that now for the past 30 years, by God's Amen. grace. So, and, and your church is moving from John Wesley to George Wesley. Uh, to George Whitfield, yeah, George yeah. Whitfield, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah. Wesley's probably spinning in his grave, but uh, yes, our church, our church is is Wesleyan in name, but our our folks are are have been taught the doctrines of grace. I've taught cl- I've taught classes there, and so uh, a lot of them are are really sharp, and uh, so uh, yeah. So we've they've they've taken the tulip instead of the daisy. You know, God loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. Yeah, yeah. Okay, amen. So um, I heard you at First Baptist Church in New York City. You did a um, a one evening uh, apologetics on social justice and really riveting as far as knowing the history and, and all of this. Um, so we, we've done a lot with the social justice already, but not so much delving into how did we get to where we are now as far as the history uh, is concerned. So um, how did the social justice worldview even develop? Right. Well, we have to go back to uh, the late 19th century with Karl Marx. And of course, Karl Marx is considered the father of uh, communism. And Karl Marx, when he wrote his book, uh, Das Kapital, um, he stated in his book that the problem with the world was that we had uh, these class distinctions between what he called the, the bourgeoisie, the bourgeois, that is the, the, the working class, uh, excuse me, the uh, business class, the capitalists. And then he, he said the working class were the proletariat. And he said that the reason why we have all these issues in the world is because there's inequality between these classes. And he felt that the, the bourgeois, the capitalists, were taking advantage of the poor. They're taking advantage of the working class. And so what Marx did was he created a uh, oppressed versus oppressor paradigm. And he taught that the only way that we could rid the world of these problems is by having a revolution. And he predicted a revolution would occur and that this would bring in what he called the utopian world, where uh, there'd be no more class distinctions. There'd be just one humanity. So if you notice very carefully, Karl Marx basically substituted himself as uh, he became the prophet. His book, Das Kapital, became the Bible, and the the Communist Party became the priesthood, and the utopian world became their the counterfeit kingdom of God on earth. And so what happened was um, he, he predicted that there'd be a revolution. Uh, after his death, Vladimir Lenin came in, and in 1917, he brought the Bolshevik Revolution to Russia. 
and he implemented Karl Marx's thinking. And so, uh, and, and then after him, we see Joseph Stalin, uh, Mao Zedong in China, and every everything we've seen from communism has been nothing but disaster, uh, mass murders, millions, hundreds of millions of lives taken, um, starvation, cannibalism, and so forth. So, what ended up happening was after the First World War in 1914. Um, when when the First World War started, all the communists were expecting all these young folks in Europe and North America to uh, rise up against their 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 aggressors, their capitalist masters, and to to bring them down, to bring a revolution. But to the shock and dismay uh, of a lot of these communists, these young people were lining up to register to join their the military forces to fight for their respective countries. And so what ended up happening was. There was a there was a setback, and what what happened was in the 1920s 30s, you you had this school that originated in Germany called the Frankfurt School, and some of these folks who were communists uh, or Marxists, they began to realize that maybe Karl Marx had the right idea, but it wasn't going to be the problem wasn't economics, it wasn't class distinctions. They argued that the problem was the culture. The culture had to change. So in order to, to get rid of the, the problem in culture, you need to destabilize Christianity, first of all. And secondly, you have to undermine the Judeo-Christian foundations of Western society. So how did they do this? Um, they said it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be a long march through the halls of academia. They, uh, they said basically everything that Christianity praises we need to uh, we need to uh, abominate anything that Christianity um, uh, uh, deplores. We must exalt. And so, what basically started happening was they started influencing the universities in Germany, and then that made its way into Europe. And then, after the Second World War, uh, they left for the United States and took up uh, their post at Columbia University in New York City. And from there, they started teaching this mentality, this whole cultural Marxism as it came to be known, which is just another word for social justice. Um, and they started infiltrating the, the academic institutions of America. And then shortly thereafter, they realized that the best way to probably get through uh, North American thinkers was to do it through the media industry. And so they moved over to Hollywood and they realized that through film industry, through the radio, um, through the screen, we could implement uh, uh, ideas that were contrary to historic Judeo-Christianity. And so Hollywood would be the, the medium for homosexuality, for um, uh, sexual liberty, for diversity. And that's exactly what we see today. Uh, Hollywood is predominantly uh, social justice advocates and warriors. Um, so all that to say that we are here because of this long planned uh, um, uh, plan by these uh, Marxists. And then in the 1960s, something huge happened in, in America. We had the sexual revolution. And what the sexual revolution did was, and it was influenced by the neo-Marxists. They, they're the ones who came up with the idea of make love, not war. That was one of their sayings. And with the sexual revolution, you had the abandonment of what was called modernism, which was based on the scientific view that there's objective truth and that objective tr truth is out there and we can discover it. Well, what they did was they rejected modernism and they instituted 
or they gave birth to what is called today postmodernism. And so postmodernism says there is no objective truth in the world, and that truth is simply, uh, it's related to culture and to group identity, and it's subjective. And so that's why you'll notice today, you'll hear people like Oprah Winfrey say things like, you know, speak your truth, as if to say truth is subject is, is subject to whatever you make it. So it's an abandonment of objective reality, objective truth, objective meaning and purpose in the world. Um, so this has been planned for decades, and we are now seeing the blooming of that type of thinking. Uh, Dr. Tony, so you, you, you said a lot of things, so we want to try to unpack it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I agree with it, and I think you did a great job pickstarting, but a, a lot of people would say, okay, let's say Marxism is the origin, which I agree mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. A lot of Christians would say, hey, communism, Marxism, that's synonymous with, with the gospel. You know, it, it's taught in the mm-hmm. gospel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What would you say to that? I think I know your answer, but what would you say to that? Uh, to the claim that it's synonymous with the gospel? Yeah, you know, um, what historically would, would, would dis- disabuse that idea? Yeah, I think it's important to note that that at the heart of Marxism, uh, you have atheism. Uh, one of the things that Marx ta- taught was that religion is the opium of the people, that, it, that it's a drug, and that what it does is it gives you a la-la land, a pie-in-the-sky mentality, and it, and it uh, retards progress in, in society and in the world. The second thing I would say is that uh, Marxism goes against the biblical work ethic. Remember, the biblical work ethic is based on uh, what we call today equality of opportunity. And what communism does is communism, at the end of the day, what it does is it, it pumps out uh, the same thing. It's, it's equality of outcome. So at the end of the day, everyone's the same. And you'll notice that in, in communist countries, there's no, there's no desire to advance because everyone is considered the same. There is no, uh, there is no higher uh, office uh, other than the Communist Party, of course. Uh, but everyone else is treated the same. That's why it's communism. It's everything's held in common. But the biblical view says, uh, whatever you put your hand to, do it with all your might. And, and then the sluggard, the Bible says in Proverbs that the sluggard you know, uh, brings destruction upon himself because he doesn't work. And Paul said, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. And, and so Jesus himself, in the story of the talents, the parable of the talents, remember he talked about how uh, a, a, a landowner gave one five talents and he gave two to another and he gave one to another. And the one who had five used it and he got 10. Well, that sounds a lot like capitalism. Uh, and then the other, one, and the, other one, the other one used two and he got four. And the other one says, you know what, I know my master is a shrewd person, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to bury it and then in the earth, and then when he comes back, I'm going to, I'm going to give it to him. Now, you remember, out of those three, which of, which of the three received the, the harshest criticism from his master? It, it was the one who did nothing and just sat on his money. So, so it, 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 you see in the story of Jesus that in that parable that Jesus was not a socialist, he was not a Marxist. He believed in the, 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 that work was to the praise of God. Uh, and so Christianity, everything we see today from the hospitals to the universities to the orphanages, the charities, all of these things were all creations of the church. And it's because the church had this Judeo-Christian Christian principle that work was to be done to the glory of God and that we were to use our efforts to uh, 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 rule the world. Remember, humans were given the cultural mandate to do what? 
to have dominion over the earth. And so we are kings. God made Adam to be a king and, and Eve to be a queen, to have dominion over the earth, to subdue the earth. That's the language of royalty. And what we have seen in our days, especially now with the whole eco-anxiety, is you'll see people are actually putting the earth before themselves. And, and, and you'll see people say things like, I, like AOC just said, uh, I, I'm, I have to give up the prospect of being a mother because of climate change. Um, and, and you're seeing a lot of this where like Prince Harry and, and Marco are saying, we're not, we're, we're not going to have more than two children because of climate change. Uh, and so what's happening here is that you see man, instead of being the glorious image of God, that God made him, the image of God, what you're seeing is social Marxism has removed that aspect of the Imago Dei, the image of God. And what it's done is it's basically reduced us to group identities. So it's not about the individual rights. They don't care about individual rights. It's about which group are you with and is it oppressed? The more oppressed you are, the more attention you should be given. Now, now, w- once again, this is stuff that we've been discussing it for a while. I think mm-hmm. we agree with you. Mm-hmm. We're studying history and seeing the same thing. Yeah. But we have some people who are going to say, yeah, yeah, you're bringing up this cultural Marxism mm-hmm. stuff. It's it, we, That's not where we came from. We just worry about people and what's going on. Mm-hmm. How would you show, how can you show us definitively, you know, maybe one or two or three connections, how social justice and Marxism is the same thing? Yeah, it's the same thing because they're both based on group identity politics. It's the same thing because it's based on the same paradigm of the oppressor versus the oppressed. It's the same thing in that it's very anti-Christian. So you'll notice most social justice warriors hate Christianity. Uh, They will blame Christianity as the purveyor of the patriarchy that has brought all these problems into, you know, we're guilty of the slave trade. We're guilty of the Crusades. We're we're guilty of the colonization that uh, we have incurred on Arab nations, the Middle East. And they'll say the same thing about the British colonizers and so forth. Uh, and what you find is is that they ignore the Islamic uh, invasions of the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, they'll they won't say that the Crusades were a four hundred year response to the crusade uh, to the Islamic conquests. They won't talk about the Islamic slave trade, the Eastern slave trade. They say nothing about that, wh- which took exponentially many more slaves. And and slavery still exists today in Islam. It still goes on in Libya. So the social justice warriors of today. Uh, usually carry these these traits. Now, let's not confuse this with biblical social justice. The biblical idea of justice is that you care for the most vulnerable, the orphans and the widows, and you care for uh, those in your in your society that are in need. And that's why in the Old Testament, God told the Israelites, "When you harvest your fields, leave the corners untouched, so that the poor can grab that." Right? You see that in the Book of Ruth. Uh, and so and so all of that to say that the, the biblical notion of social justice is based on the fact that humans are made in God's image and that and that they they are worthy of dignity, respect, integrity. Uh, but the social justice that we see in the secular world is a completely different animal. It's all about uh, getting rid of the oppressor, getting rid. And that's why you see calls in the United States today to to overrule the First Amendment and the Second Amendment. Right, because these are Judeo-Christian principles, foundations that were laid by the founding fathers, and they knew that if man is not is not able to be freely himself and express himself and have freedom of of thought and so forth, they knew the 
that the opposite of that would be tyranny. Now, in the Judeo-Christian, well, in the scriptures, don't we just have justice and injustice? There's never an adjective with it. And so injustice was sin, right? And justice is what God commanded and called for. So um, we don't actually see any phraseology of social justice. So this is something that's secular. This is something that's coming from without and trying to Trojan horse its way and, and has has had a lot of success of coming from without to within to infect the church of God. And so what we have is we have a lot of people, even Christian leaders that have adopted this and have actually said that if you don't have this social justice arm, that, you, that there's something missing from the gospel. And I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, Southern Baptist Convention. They, they adopted these as analytical tools with critical race theory and intersectionality. And so uh, we mentioned what we thought the major problem with that is. What do you think is the major problem with adopting these as analytical tools? I think the major problem is that what it does is that it, by nature, it's divisive. It creates this oppressor versus oppressed. And what it does is it creates a sense of guilt, collective guilt. Uh, For example, the whole issue of the slave trade uh, and white people should have a collective guilt for what their ancestors did, even though some, some of their ancestors may not have been from the United States. They could have come from Europe where they didn't have slavery in some of the parts of Europe. Uh, outside of England, for example. Uh, and so my major problem with that is that what it does is it it undermines the unity of the body of Christ because in Christ, uh, we have a new federal head. We have a body that is united, not Christ isn't made of various bodies. There's one body. And that whether you're Jew or a Gentile, whether you're free, whether you're a slave, whether you are Uh, a male or a female, we are all one in Christ. That doesn't deny sexual distinctions, obviously, or ethnic distinctions. But what it says is that in Christ, in the body of Christ, there is none greater or lesser than the other. And therefore, uh, in the body of Christ, we we have our, our, our representative is the last Adam. We are a new humanity. We are new creations in Christ. The old has passed and all things become new. What's happening with the social justice is that they're harping on things from the past and they're bringing it into the church. So what we see with the critical race theory is what it is doing is it's breaking the church into little tribes. And so now you've got, for example, uh, when we saw that at Harvard, for example, a blacks only graduation ceremony. And so what we're seeing is the reversal of what Dr. Martin Luther King was arguing for that he said he foresaw a day when people would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. So what's happening is they're they're basically going back to the Jim Crow laws, not directly, but they're saying we only want black graduation, black classes, and so forth. And so what's happening is you will notice it's not those on the right that are advocating for this. It's the left that is agreeing with this segregation. Dr. Tony, what about the safe spaces in, in colleges? Yeah, Yes, we, we have them all over here in, the, in Toronto at the universities as well. Well, these safe spaces are creating this idea, again, of the oppressor oppressed. And so safe places are where homosexuals, gays, lesbians, transgender, transvestites, they can go to and feel safe. Or, and even black people where they don't want any white people. Yes. There. I think a, a professor was, was about to be fired because he came on the day. He was a liberal, but he came on a day when they wanted to have only black people. Yes. 
That's right. And so and so what we're seeing here again is uh, this form of tribalism that's going on. So here in Toronto at the university where I do some teaching, we have signs across the campus, uh, the black graduate graduates uh, uh, club uh, and and only blacks. And then the, the, the Chinese, uh, the Chinese club. And then you've got this, the Indian club and you've got all these various clubs. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago they posted some po- posters about a white man, a white person's club, <laughs> and the whole university went berserk. They wanted to know who posted them, and and basically who posted them. These are white supremacists and so forth. <laughs> and so you could see the the, the social justice uh, paradigm there is that if you're a white European uh, Christian, you are the enemy. You have white privilege, and and everyone else is is oppressed. And so uh, as as a white man, uh, they will say that your your ancestors colonized, your ancestors killed the native Indians and so forth. And so all guilt is placed at the feet of one particular group. Now, and, would and you, I, wouldn't you wait, say hold, that's... Hold on one sec, yeah. Glenn. I just want to ask him about this because, well, two things. One, I think that we have um, revisionist history going on here. And the second thing, I remember that you spoke about the matrix of the oppressed. So can can you kind of uh, speak to those two issues? Yes, um, the, the the whole issue of of the matrix of oppression uh, or the wheel of oppression. It's like the wheel of fortune in the Marxist context. Um, but the wheel of oppression or the the matrix of oppression basically says that there's there's grades of of, of oppression. So if you're a white person and you're gay, well, okay, you're oppressed. But if you're a black person and you're gay, you're more oppressed. Because it's not just your sexual orientation, it's your skin color that disadvantages you as well. Now, if you are a black person who happens to be not just gay, but you're also, uh, you, you may be transsexual or you, you can add whatever label you want to that. Well, you're even more oppressed than the other. And that goes as well with religion. So if you're a white Protestant Christian, you are in the privileged category. If you are a Muslim, and believe it or not, they believe Muslims are oppressed, which is ironic because, I mean, if you look at the various terrorist attacks that have occurred, they are predominantly Islamic. And then they'll look at Buddhists. Well, they're oppressed. Uh, the, uh, Hindus are oppressed. Uh, uh, not so much Jews because they're kind of in the white side there. Um, but everyone else are oppressed. Um, so uh, same goes with white, white privileged women as well. Uh, they're more oppressed than, let's say, an Asian, uh, an Asian Chinese woman. Uh, and yet the irony here is that in the United States, uh, Asian Americans actually earn more than, than white Americans. But no one talks about Asian privilege, you see, because it's not part of the narrative. There's a narrative. Right. And that's why the media, you'll notice, the media selectively chooses which stories to report on. Uh, and you see it right now in your country. Uh, this whole the whole issue with the Trump administration uh, is it's so obvious what's going on here with the selection of the media, yeah, picking yeah. and choosing. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the in the in academia, uh, I mean, Asians are are kicking everybody's butt ac- academically, and so they're trying to. It's kind of like uh, the reverse of. Um, uh, what's that called when they were um, trying to have more black people in uh, affirmative action that it's like a affirmative right. action. It's like a reversal of that trying to keep Asian people out because, Oh, it's not fair. Right. 
Um, See, <laughs> it's, yeah. not, it's not fair that they study so yeah. hard and that but, they do so this, well. This is, this is what we were talking about. It's, it's the difference between equality of opportunity and equality of outcome. So the reason why they're saying it's not fair is they want everybody to be the same. At the end, at the end of the assembly line, equality of outcome. Yeah, they're all the so same. So, like, is everybody supposed to drive a Mercedes uh, exactly. or a, a or or a Rolls Canard? Yeah, exactly, precisely. You know what a Do you know what a Rolls Canard no, is? No, I don't. It, it's a car that rolls down one hill and can hardly get up the next. <laughs> so, I mean, everyone's supposed to have. Everybody doesn't even like the same thing. Right, things. right. Everyone's not gonna. I mean, I work at a school. Some kids work really hard and some kids hardly yeah. work. And we and we have everything in between. Mm-hmm. So when I put this to students that are into Bernie Sanders, I said, all right, let's say you get 100 on, a, on your test. Mm-hmm. And one kid doesn't study at all. Should I take your test grade and now everybody gets a 65? Right. And they're like, oh, that's not fair. Right. Well, but that's Bernie Sanders. Well, it's like if you tell your children... Uh, you know, if you do a chore, like let's say, let's say you, you, you clean the bathroom for mom and dad and you say, I'll give you $10. And so, you know, your kid goes in there and then and then when they're done, they've done a great job. You say, you know what? I, I promised you 10. I'm going to give you three dollars. I'm going to give seven dollars to your brother who didn't do anything. Well, of course, right. that's not fair. But see, Margaret Thatcher, the, the British prime minister, once said that socialism is using everyone else's money until you run out. And, and that's where that's where uh, uh, Sanders, Bernie Sanders is heading for sure. Now I, I want to get back to 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 the suppression thing, uh, and I just thought it was something ironic because I was I was looking at some of the things you've done before, and it isn't it ironic that I would say the most oppressed group, if you want to group people, would be Bible believing Christians, <laughs> and now we're not we're we're right. the aggressors, right? Exactly right. Well, Rurik uh, just recently said. At the DNC, uh, was it the open house or something? Uh, he was asked by uh, Don Lemon from CNN, uh, "What would you do with churches and 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 Christian universities, colleges that are opposed to LGBTQ lifestyles?" He said, "I would remove their tax exemption status from the churches." So I tweeted him and I asked him. I said, "Well, what about mosques? Uh, mosques also oppose LGBTQ and same-sex marriage." would you also remove tax exemption status from the Islamic mosques? So you notice on every turn, it's always the Christians that are attacked. Uh, you rarely hear anything about uh, you know, what, the, what the Muslims are doing or the, 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 uh, the globalist agenda that Islam has to conquer America and the world, because that, that's part of the jihad uh, process. No one talks about that. You'll always notice it's always the Christians that are always at the end of the stick, always. Why the revisionist history? Like, why are people talking out of two sides of their mouth? Like, they, they're not giving they're not giving a true picture historically. Right, right. Well, Karl Marx said that the first line of battle in 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 uh, in the war is to revise history. He himself he himself advocated that, as did Lenin and Stalin. Um, and so the reason for that is because there's something in social justice called. The hermeneutics of suspicion. What that means is all writings are written by the winners write history and all literature is written with a desire by the writer to assume power. So there's this suspicion, this hermeneutic of suspicion. And so what they believe is that a sense objective truth does not exist. And since there is nothing uh, objective about history itself, 
that it's all in the hands of the of the oppressors and the powerful, then what they do is they feel that they have to go back and basically revise history from the standpoint of the human being as a group identity entity, if you if I can put it that way. In other words, if you look at what social justice is saying is we need to go back to the time of our of our primitive roots, where you know the so-called noble savage, where we were all devoid of any political corruption and so forth. So they don't believe in logic as well. So when you want to debate them, uh, I've tried to debate them. All they do is throw epithets at you. They just call you Nazi scum. They'll call you, uh, you know, uh, you're you're a Nazi. You're you're a redneck. You're you're a homophobe. You're an Islamophobe. And 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 so they're not interested in facts. They're not interested in truth. What they're interested in is it's power over truth, and it's by all means necessary. And therefore, you'll notice that they're not interested in open debate. I mean, you see that with Stephen Crowder. You know, when he's tried to engage them, you see that with even with um, you think of someone like Tucker Carlson, when he engages these people, they just end up contradicting themselves. Piers Morgan. Uh, and and so to them, history is about the reason why it has to be revised is because the oppressors have written history. And the Bible, for example, is written by a patriarchal system. And it was written by people who wanted to control women and wanted to control the poor and 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 the needy in their societies. And so that's how they look at the world. That's how they look at literature. And that's why postmodern writers today, they don't have a sense of, they'll tell you that history, history is a uh, social construct that we cannot truly know history. And what does that do? It undermines Christ. It undermines the biblical witness because God revealed himself within history. Uh, and therefore, they're not interested in in truth. They're interested in power. Now, now um, I don't want to get too off tangent, but you said something very interesting. Um, and I hear people say it all the time, a narrative. And I think I know what it means, but a lot of people don't know what it means. So what is a narrative? And and. Is a narrative being used right now in the Christian church to push this agenda? Yeah, yeah. The narrative simply means that it's a story, but it's a story in history, and it's not devoid of history. And therefore, the, the Bible, for example, large portions of the Bible are narrative. The Gospels are narrative. They're the life of Jesus, where he was born, who were his disciples, who was his family, and so forth, his death, where did it take place? Um, and so much of scripture is narrative writing. And but the way the social justice uh, warriors use that word, remember, um, uh, words mean what they mean in context. Mm. And therefore, we need to keep asking them to define their terms. What they mean is a narrative is basically they speak of meta narratives and a meta narrative is the bigger story, the, the big picture of all things. Right. And and the way they use a narrative is, again, the narrative is this oppressor versus the oppressed. And it's been the strong who've always controlled the weak. It's the strong who've written history. And so what they want to do is they want to rewrite the narrative and bring us back to uh, to what we were originally. Well, according to them, I mean, they, they adopt the evolutionary theory as well. And, and that's ironic because Charles Darwin, if you read the subtitle of his book, Origin of the Species, it says the preservation of favored races in the survival for life. And I've not yet seen Charles Darwin's books removed out of the libraries for being a white supremacist. 
And he was a white supremacist. He believed that the white European male would vanquish the savage tribes of Africa. And, and yet no one's asking for his statues to be t torn down, his books removed, because his books are the, are the foundation of, of all of biology in the world today, secular biology. Yeah, I, I find that interesting because when I was in a grad school class and we were dealing, my topic was prejudice and racism. And I quoted from Darwin about how all black people were less intelligent than all Caucasian people and that all Whoa, 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 uh, whoa, 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 fell. Say that again a little clearer. Uh, this, <laughs> them, them's, them's fighting yeah. words. And so in, in Charles Darwin's book, The Descent of Man, Volume 2, he posits that all black people were less intelligent than all Caucasian people. That's right. And also that all women were less intelligent than all men. So I, re so I read these quotes, and this, this girl in my class says, and I'm, I'm in grad school, she goes, uh, you're misinterpreting Darwin. I, you know what I said? I didn't interpret. I didn't interpret yeah. anything. I just, I just read his words. Yeah, but yeah. it was like yeah. so blatantly obvious. Um, Absolutely. You know, and what you notice is when you look at the evolutionary, uh, I guess, timeline where you go from primate to human. Not only does 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 that primate stand more erect, but he goes from darker to lighter. Yes, and also Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, she she spoke of blacks and Latinos and even Jews as uh, human weeds that need to be eradicated. And she actually said it was justified for a parent to kill, her, to kill their children, their babies, after birth, because uh, families are too large, we're having too many babies. That was back in the 1920s. But what a lot of folks don't realize is that Margaret Sanger opened the, the door to eugenics, yes, which was practiced in America prior to uh, the, the Nazi Germany. And in fact, Adolf Hitler credited the American eugenicists with giving him the idea of uh, basically viewing the Jews as non-human and vermin. And he basically said, well, they're not human, so what does it matter what we do with them? That's the same argument that the pro-choice movement is using. Well, they're not human, so it's okay for us to destroy them. And, and it's not just Margaret Sanger. Uh, you know, Charles Darwin was known to hate blacks in particular. He made it very clear. He also hated Mexicans for some reason. So, yeah, he probably would probably. <laughs> so um, so it, it's Darwin and you also have Sanger and uh, and and they all base this on the evolutionary Darwinian theory. Yeah, that's. Wow. Oh, wow. I mean, it, it's it's absolutely all over the place. So when we deal with the matrix of the oppressed. What institutions do you think we see social justice affecting in our culture? It's, it's affecting primarily our academic institutions. It's also affecting our governments. Uh, so up here in Canada, we're, we're going to be electing a new prime minister in about two weeks' time. And the current prime minister that we have, Justin Trudeau, is, a, is completely given over to social justice. He, um, he believes in globalism. He doesn't believe in uh, the concept of nation states. He talks about a global village. Uh, he talks about no, no, no walls, no boundaries, and so forth. And what you see is that many of our schools are teaching our students this mentality. So we do have social justice departments in our universities here in Canada. They're actually called Department of Social Justice. And we also have wow. anything that has things like uh, LGBTQ studies, women's studies, post-colonial studies, African-American studies, uh, Aboriginal or Native American studies. All of these groups are all schools of social justice. And my, my senior pastor the other day told me that his son came home from college and he's studying film, film studies and, and graphic design. His son told him, 
that while he was, while he was at the college, they were teaching him uh, white privilege, uh, uh, how certain groups are oppressed by the colon, uh, colonizers and so forth and so on. So there he is studying film studies. And what is he learning? He's learning social justice. Because you see, they're, they're pumping this into the minds of our, our students because, think about it, they're the ones who are going to influence our future. It, but it's not just them, it's in our government. So if you look at, for example, our, our government, present government is, is completely liberal and left-wing, pro-choice, pro-LGBTQ, uh, uh, they're huge on the whole white privilege issue. Uh, and even in the United States, you see that as well with the Democratic Party that they feed on this group identity yeah. politics. And they're doing this particularly, Candace Owens has opened the door on this. She has shown that uh, that uh, they are they are taking advantage of black Americans to keep them subdued. Because as long as they keep them impoverished, they they keep their jobs. I mean, we we saw Baltimore, Maryland. Exactly. Exactly. You never look have to Balt- fix uh, Look at what hap- was happening in, in Baltimore, in Maryland, and, and, and how how the government in that area just basically doesn't care because as long as they're victimized, they remain in power. I, I wanted to ask one thing before we jump to another point is what do you, what do you think? Do you think this is encapsulated in what's happening with the NBA and China? And after you finish with that, with all the things you've just told us, and some people know everyone to some extent knows some aspect of this. Why would the church want this to be a part of it? Why, why would we embrace that? Yeah, I think with the the issue of the NBA, it, it, it is social justice because a lot of these NBA folks had no problem, uh, n- you know, not standing for the national anthem. They had no problem uh, dissing the president of the United States. But when they're in China and they're being asked about, well, what's your view on the the way China has been treating the folks in Hong Kong, and the Chinese government has been incarcerating. Uh, hundreds of thousands of Chinese Muslims in concentration camps to to deprogram them and so forth, and this is widely known. And there's t- and gays as well, and tortures going on as well. And so when the NBA, uh, when when players were being asked about, so what do you have to say? The Chinese media immediately had that microphone taken away from from the questioner. So, yes, it is social justice, but it's hypocritical as well, because what you find with social justice is a lot of them end up cannibalizing each other. So, in other words, what happens here is, you know, these NBA stars who are millionaires, really, they're millionaires, they'll make in one in one season, you'll never make what they make in a whole lifetime. But a lot of these folks, uh, no problem attacking Trump, no problem attacking um, the uh, the government of the United States, no problem disrespecting the flag or the national anthem. But when they're in China, the, one of the world's leading human rights abusers, and they don't say a word, that is hypocrisy to the nth degree. Absolutely amazing. amazing. Now, in terms, so, in terms of the church, to get to your second question, in terms of the church, why is the church beginning to uh, accept this? I think it's because particularly evangelical Christianity. Now, the Roman Catholic Church is moving in that direction because Pope Francis, I believe, is a Marxist and uh, liberate, a liberation yeah. theologian. Uh, he he came out of Argentina, and there was a lot of liberation theology there, which is Marxism. Uh, and so I'm not surprised with him, because I've known that from the start, that he was a Marxist. But in evangelical Christianity, there's a bit of a crisis starting, where what's happening is the evangelical church is beginning to wonder whether 
she is relevant. And there's this fear that the church is losing touch with the culture. And so what they're doing is in order to become um, sociably acceptable and to become uh, attractive, if you will, she's beginning to imbibe this social justice ideology. And, and the problem with that is, well, one of the reasons why the church isn't relevant is because, number one, she's not doing her job. She should be preaching the gospel. <laughs> Evangelism should be at the top right. of their list. Instead of, you know, playing ping pong on Friday nights, they should be going out on the streets preaching Jesus Christ. And the other thing is we haven't taught our people how to uh, defend their faith in a cogent manner. So a lot of our folks go out to college and university and they get steamrolled by the professors, and they walk out of there as agnostics or atheists on the other end. Majority of them don't come back to church. And so what I feel, I'm seeing it up here, and I'm sure it's the same in the United States, is, is that when yes. the church, there are churches that, that they want to feel relevant. Look at the whole seeker-sensitive movement, Rick Warren and the, yes. the purpose-driven life. The whole idea there was to make the church palatable to the unbelieving world. The thing is, the church will never be palatable. The gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. It is offensive to them. And here's the thing. The church must remain distinctive. She is the salt of the earth. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. But we must not lose touch with the world as well, because we are to be fishers of men. We are to yes. go out. Mm. And so what, we, what we're doing is we become the keepers of the aquarium. We want to keep the fish we have and keep them in our, our local churches, and take care of them. And then we do the Holy Huddle. Every Sunday we do the Holy Huddle. We just get together and just have a, a social club. And that's the problem, is we're not doing what Christ commanded. We're not we're not fulfilling the Great Commission. I'm not saying all churches are doing this. But right. the ones that are, doing, that, that are doing this are growing. Isn't this a... Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm teaching on the Trinity, um, so, and I, so po I. I posited... Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I posited that uh, you know, um the the universities are trying to have diverse unity and diversity, right, in the university. But in the gospels it tells us to go into all the world and make disciples of all the ethnicities right. of the world. And so it's the exact opposite trying to bring unity and diversity in a way that God has not prescribed. That's and right. that actually is impossible in, in, in trying to bring them to a utopia over here right. versus uh, teaching all the ethnicities to come to Christ right. and that they will all look to the Lamb for salvation yeah. and all be unified in Christ. Correct. And, you know, diversity and unity is actually... Uh, is actually rooted in God. I mean, you have right. the Trinity is diversity and unity. It's three persons yes. in the one being of God. And and so God is the foundation of this plurality within unity. And so the university, of course, as you know, uh, means that there is diversity, but there's one truth. Truth is standard. Yes. Truth is a constant. And and so what God meant for diversity and unity, there's, there's many people in the one body of Christ what the world means by diversity is they'll tell you diversity is our strength. No, diversity is not our strength. Unity is our strength. And it's diversity in unity, not this, oh, diversity is our strength. Because the whole point of social justice is to focus on group identities. You are connected to the group that you're from. And so instead of looking at people in a wholesome way, 
as image bearers of God, irrespective of their color, we're putting them in these little these little group settings, and we're attributing all these oppressive uh, the status of oppression to each of these groups in a in a in a, in a, a high and low degree scale. But but professor, so and 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 I, and I love what you're saying, and I agree 100. percent But you, but I'm hearing these arguments. But what but what about the society, the people who are suffering, the people who are oppressed, the church shouldn't get involved? We're not supposed to do anything? Well, how is biblical justice the answer over social justice in these kind of situations? Yeah, I think the first thing we need to realize is that the acts of charity, of reaching out to the poor, of feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, and so forth, all of these things were historically done by the church. It's the churches that created the the leper colonies and the blind blind guide missions and and charities like the Salvation Army, uh, even World Vision. Uh, I have a lot to say about that. But there's a lot of Christian organizations yes. out there. Yes, <laughs> yes, indeed. There's a lot of Christian organizations out there that um, that are working in charity. But here's the thing: the gospel is first and foremost the primary calling of the church. You can feed someone, you can clothe them, you can you can put them back on their feet. But if they don't have the gospel, they're lost, and they're, they are impoverished spiritually. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't care for the poor. Of course we do. But Paul says that we ought to do good to all men, but especially to those of the household of faith. If you can't take care of your own family, Paul says, how can you run the church of God? And so the point here is this. We do provide for our own, and I think where the church can, she should help. I know there are food banks here in Toronto where a lot of Christians take part in. They help out with food banks. Uh, they provide meals for the disenfranchised during Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter, and so forth. And so, in one sense, yeah, the church is the breadbasket of the world. But in another sense, I mean, we're, we're now in a, in, in North America. We 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 have these population growths that obviously not every single church can take care of every single need, and that's why we pay our taxes. I mean, we pay taxes for governments to provide social services. But what's happening is a lot of these social services are keeping these people imprisoned in the sense that what it does is instead of getting them back on their feet again and making them employable, what they're doing is they're keeping them on that welfare system. And then what they end up doing is they have more children. A lot of single mothers continue to have more children. And then it's just, it just keeps going. It's a vicious cycle. So so the way the way we look at it is, of course, we care for the downtrodden. Of course, we care for, for those who are hungry and so forth. But at the same time, uh, the government has been established by God, Romans 13, and and yes. we pay our taxes and so forth. And, and, and therefore, the government should be executing its role uh, in seeking the good of its people. And unfortunately, we're living in a day and age where governments don't care about that. Uh, very few governments actually care about the welfare of their people. A lot of them, yeah, a lot of them just more. wants to keep them victimized. Now I work. I work in a in um, in New York City. I work in Harlem, um, and I work with kids. And I, I have tons of kids that have no fathers in the homes. Like like I'm the closest thing they have to a father, you know. And I mean, I, you know, I love all the kids, um, but sometimes it's really rough because you know I can have a sixth grade student that tells you to go blankety blank blank blank. And then, like sometimes, there's little consequence. Sometimes there's consequence. Sometimes there's no consequence, in 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 one respect. Um, and then everybody kind of blames someone else, but no one's looking to the home. And it's like the government is saying, "Listen, don't get married. 
we'll take care of you. You know, uh, have as many kids as you want. We'll feed them. We'll clothe them. We'll change them. And then when things go wrong, when the kid's failing in school, then it's, well, what's a teacher doing that's wrong? You know, and, and there's like, there's no, there's no onus on the home life, at, like at all. And I, I saw a picture, it said in the 19, it was like, I don't know, in the 1950s, there's a picture of a um, a mother grabbing uh, a failed test paper and like yelling at the kid saying, what do you have to say about this? And then now in the modern times, uh, the the woman is grabbing the paper and yelling at the teacher and says, what do you have to say about this? And, and I think that's the Candace Owens argument. That's what's happening in the black community is with all these handouts and these hand downs and we're going to take care of it. Nothing is our fault. Nothing is ever about us. Right. And, and if you notice, it's always a scapegoating. It's, it's because of slavery. It's because I just saw just the other, just today, actually, I saw uh, a, a video of, of these black ladies who were overweight, blaming it on Donald Trump. And, and so, and so, uh, yes, yeah. Very serious? Serious. No, no, I heard yeah, very, Cause he yeah, was I guess so. Him. I guess so. But, too much capitalism. He was doing the forklift. So you know? what you'll notice is there's a lot of scapegoating. And, and, and you'll notice that when, when these issues arise, they never blame themselves or, you know, I should have obeyed God and, and, and stayed in my marriage or got married, have children, raise a family, and so forth. What we end up doing is you'll notice they never blame themselves. It's either it's the government's fault, it's the patriarchy, it's the church's fault, it's, it's Christianity's fault, but it's never their fault. And so this is just an old game, isn't it? I mean, we see it in the Garden of Eden when when Adam fell. Uh, the first thing he did was he blamed he he blamed actually blamed God. I mean, if remember when the Lord yeah, said to him, yeah. you know, yes. what have you done? He said, "The woman you gave me, she made me eat." So it's not so much the woman; it's the woman that you gave me. So really, you're you're indirectly responsible. And of course, when Eve was asked, she says, "Well, it's the serpent." So so what we find is that it's it's. We're always scapegoating. We're always blaming something else instead of looking to ourselves. You know, the problem isn't uh, out there. All religions say the problem is out there and the answer is inside here. The Bible says, no, the problem is in here. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who can know it. And so this is the problem. The answer is out there. We need to call on the name of the Lord to be saved, to be cleansed, to be restored. And so, yeah. isn't that the foundation of it that we acknowledge that we are sinners, that we are lost? Absolutely. That we are the problem. Absolutely. And that's why, again, when we acknowledge that, that as David did in Psalm 51, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, that's when we experience this restoration where we experience God's mercy, grace, and forgiveness. But as long as we keep blaming, you know, it's the devil who made me do it, it's this, it's that. We're never going to get anywhere. And and so it's really, you know, we live in a day and age where uh, responsibility is a thing of the past. Uh, there's no sense of shame. There's no sense of guilt. Uh, because, again, we have removed God. We've removed this objective uh, standard of truth from society. And and so, you know, there's a saying by the, the philosophers, Santayana, that those who don't remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And if we don't learn from the errors of the past, we will repeat them. Professor, so so just to, to, to finish it up, 
what should a regular church, a regular Christian do? How do, how do they deal with this? They're not going to have as much knowledge as you have or, you know, have the time to do the research. How do they deal with this? What, you know, they're in their church. Someone comes up to them and starts saying, you know, racism is the cause of, you know, for example, I read an article saying colonialism is the first sin or some, some nonsense like that. What do they do? How do they yeah, deal with it? Well, there's no easy way around this. There's no, you know, the, we don't learn by osmosis. We, we, we need to, to study. We need to learn. And so what I would do is I would encourage them. Sovereign Nations right now has a wonderful series on this whole social justice, the Trojan horse of social justice. Uh, I would encourage them to watch that. Yes. There's three episodes out right now. I would encourage them to check out Prager, uh, University, Prager University videos are excellent. Uh, they're, they're short, brief sound bites, but they're to the point. They're filled with data, with information. And so what I would encourage them to, to do is, is, is uh, learn this. There's no way around it. You need to educate yourselves. And then when you begin to see this, one of my students just told me, uh, I taught a course on, so I'm teaching right now, a course on social justice at Toronto Baptist Seminary. He said to me, he said, Professor, when I took that course after a couple of days, I, he said, it's as if I put on these new set of glasses and I now can see where, every, where all these thoughts and ideas come from. I can connect the dots. And so I think it's important that we, we realize that the church has to deal with this. It'll be to our detriment if we do not. And so basically get educated, get informed, and learn the buzzwords. It's a worldview. It has its own language. It has its own thought processes. So it's George Orwell, 1984, all yeah. over again. Yeah. Well, listen, we really want to thank you. Um, it's really important. I'm a pastor as well. Um, Glenn's one of our deacons and, uh, Steve, uh, preaches and teaches at our church. So, um, we, in that respect, all have the, the ears of the people in the church and opportunity to influence them. And so, uh, you know, we're just trying to bring the truth to bear, uh, on these kinds of things. Several people in our church do listen to our podcast and we preach about these things in the pulpit as well, because uh, it is a Trojan horse. And when we look through history, it seems that, you know, we had Arianism and modalism and and, yes. and, and this seems mm-hmm. to be the ism of our day. And and so yes. um, we we can't cowtail. We can't bend to it. We can't acquiesce to it. We have to combat it with the only analytical tool that God has given us. And that is the scriptures. And and it's Amen. such a shame that the Southern Baptist Amen. Convention has like tried to marry two things together. If if we have sufficiency of Scripture, Scripture alone, we don't need any other analytical tool. Yes. It is the pipeline, correct? Right? Um, it's it it's absolutely all that we need for life and godliness. Well, listen, I want to thank you, my brother, um, and hopefully we can do a little bit, little bit more uh, in the future. Sure. And if you're coming into uh, to New York City again, we would love to know about it. Hopefully Chris Arnzen will let us know. Um, you can email us directly as well. And um, if you listen to our podcast, uh, give us some of your feedback. We'd greatly appreciate it. And uh, any ideas, too, of uh, some of the things that you think would be helpful to cover. So we're looking to go into into uh, the sovereignty of God next, which is uh, another big, big animal to, to tackle. And so, um, you know, we, uh, we started this with the purpose to glorify God, and we want to keep that going. 
Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. We praise you uh, for this great opportunity to be able to interview our brother, uh, Tony Costa, for your honor and for your glory. And may the truth that he has shared really impact the hearts uh, of those that are especially struggling with this and that really don't understand it. And so, Lord, uh, we give you honor and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you've heard uh, from Tony Costa, professor, apologist, pastor, child of God, and brother in Christ. We just want to tell all our listeners you can help uh, to support this podcast on uh, Patreon. Uh, You can check that out on our website. Thank you for taking this time to stop and think about it. If you would like to contact us, please email us at stopandthinkcrew at gmail.com. You could also visit our website at www.stopandthinkpodcast.com. This podcast is listener supported by generous people like you. You can give a tax deductible donation at our affiliate ministry at www.soulfishyministries.org and click on our donate link to give securely through PayPal. Thank you for listening to Stop and Think About It. 